And hello, everybody. Welcome to Narrative Live. It is a late start for us tonight, and I apologize for that. That's entirely my fault, but we're here. And I'm very excited to have Jeff Stein from the incredible Spy Talk, who is, and you got such a good tagline. You were just telling me, intelligence for thinking people, I think you just said it was. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, we kind of like that. It's a really good one. People may recognize you from your long and illustrious career as the, as the guy from Newsweek who covered a lot of interesting things as a columnist. You're also at the Washington Post. And before that, you had Congressional Quarterly, quite an illustrious career. And then you've decided to spend a lot of time these days focused entirely on the intelligence world. And you're also the foreign news editor for UPI. You've been at the New Republic, the nation, and Italy's L'Espresso. Do you speak Italian? Si. It's great to be able to just do intelligence stuff because I got into this because I was a case officer myself. I did a stint with the Army and Army Intelligence. I was ended up in Vietnam, but I was trained as if I were going to Berlin and to send agents behind the Iron Curtain, as we called it. So all the tradecraft stuff, I learned how to spot, recruit, and manage a, a spy. You live undercover, invisible writing, secret photography, all that stuff. It's a boy's life, I got to tell you. What an experience. It was my way of getting out of the draft into the infantry. And this is during the Vietnam War, and I didn't even like camping, so... I knew I'd be no good at the infantry. So you mentioned recruiting. When you look at the case we're looking at tonight, when you look at the, this incredible incursion into the FBI, as, as it appears to me, when you look at Charlie McGonagall, do you think of him as a good candidate for recruiting? He seems to me like one of those people who'd be primed for any foreign intelligence agency to go after. I know there's an acronym people use, and you've reported in your last story called MICE, stands for, you'll tell us, I hope, in a few seconds. But he does seem to me like he's perfect character for that. Yeah, you never learn that. The next day, by the way, I did a, an interview. I touted my, pod, my own podcast interview with a fellow that talked about how he turned into kind of, he had to be a sociopath to be a case officer, which is you're looking for people's weaknesses and how to exploit their weaknesses. And that's a really sociopathic kind of behavior. It really is. But you learn to split your mind between I'm doing this for the defense of the United States or whoever you're working for, you're a Russian case officer, you're doing exactly the same way. So you look at, you look at weaknesses you can exploit and most people have a weakness and, but guys who become defectors in place, spies, they're usually, they, their weaknesses are amplified because they're in a, a kind of cloistered atmosphere being in the intelligence world for a long time. And they develop needs, like most people, they need money. They're, they're kids in college. They, feel, they might feel resentment that they haven't gotten ahead as much as they thought they should have. If their bosses were dickheads, as one of my sources on McGonagall put it, that he was a dickhead because he was always screaming at his subordinates. He was always kissing up to his peers and his managers, but he screamed. They called it the McGonagall shower. stood in front of him. <laughs> I know people like that. I've worked with people like that. It's, it's, not, it's no fun. Everybody's you know? worked for somebody like that. So he had all these resentments, and he had this incredible ego. And the FBI people don't get paid that much. A topic, the FBI is a pretty important organization. And if you're pretty highly ranked like he was as the head of counterintelligence of the FBI, you might be thinking, I should be making a lot more money doing what I'm doing. I'm doing world-changing stuff. Yeah, you really are um, in that job, especially in the years that he was working. He was 
right at the tip of all these world events. He, he probably did, we think, maybe change the course of history. But if not, he certainly had the capability of doing that. The New York office is almost like a, a semi-autonomous branch of the FBI, like the prosecutors, the DOJ office in the Southern District of New York is almost like its own Justice Department. There's a lot of autonomy there. It's a very powerful audience. And if you're running counterintelligence in New York, you're really in the center of things because that's where the spies are. If they're not in Washington, they're in New York. And there's the United Nations with all its spies and counter spies and so on. And you're certainly going to know the ins and outs of your opponents. And if your opponent hasn't been indicted, like Oleg Spaka, and he comes to you and he gives you a business opportunity, you can say, I know this guy. You can say to yourself, I know this guy is virtually, he's a Russian agent. But he's never been indicted here. He's never been charged with espionage, money laundering, all these other things he's been charged with or suspected of. And of course, Charlie McGonagall was really in a position to know this. So he knows who he's dealing with. But he knew as well and that he was critical to the 2016 influence operation. So it's not that he didn't know he was he guilty. Knew that. He knew he was guilty. He was just, he knew all this stuff mm. about Deraspaska. Yeah. He knew all this stuff about him. The smell of money. You wave the smell of money in front of a guy like McGonagall who's got resentments, right? And he's got a huge ego. And so here comes somebody waving a lot of money, more money than you've ever seen before, except in money laundering cases that you might have been involved in. And you want to show your bosses that you can really pull something off in a negative way. You're almost asking to be caught. People who do this are sick little puppies. They really have got a crack in their personality. And a trained intelligence officer is, is trained to recognize this and draw this out over conversations over time and then fill the need that is the gaping hole in your target's personality. Love, affection, respect. In the case of Anna Montes, the Cuban spy who was recently released, the Cubans, she was enraged. She was working high up in the Defense Intelligence Agency, but she was really militantly against the war in Central America, the wars in Central America. So a friend who's a Cuban asset introduces her to a Cuban who listens, hears her out, and uh, gives her a way to act on her hatred for the U.S. role in Central America and says, we can help you hurt the U.S. in El Salvador and Nicaragua. And she, you don't have to do anything else. You can just work on that. Just give us secrets about that. And she's recruited. And then, of course, they move the goalposts and say, we'd like some more and something else. Once you've taken the step across the line, they've got you, right? They can blackmail you. I want to dig into two things. So with Charlie secret. McGonagall, as soon as he stepped across the line, as soon as he had caught with Darius Boska, mm. and maybe Darius Boska had his guys taking surveillance photos of them together, mm. they got him. They it got seems him. to me that it started much before he even met Darius Boska, officially at least, in the, according to the timeline. He had the contact with the former consulate official, who was then a translator, I think, in Brooklyn court. And in the course of his time at the, uh, as an investigator and uh, the special agent in charge of counterintelligence in New York. He encountered this 
former diplomat in the Brooklyn courts because that's where you go and do your business sometimes. So it's not like they were strangers mm-hmm. to each other. They knew each other. They had certainly crossed paths. And what I find so interesting yeah, is during that entire, in that yeah. Yeah, in that entire period of 2016, into the summer of 2016, the FBI was really trying to flip Deripaska. They basically handed him a visa in February of 2016 because they thought maybe if they treat him nicely and if they exchange some information with them, he'd be able to, they'll be able to flip him. So the reason why he was even in the United States at the time of the elections or leading up to the elections was because the FBI gave him that visa. And there's no doubt that, you know, he would have encountered Deripaska and even perhaps in the halls there, they might have had conversations. They were debriefing him on various occasions. It would not have been surprising. Deripaska was throwing him, he was throwing himself at U.S. intelligence as well. Yeah, exactly. So he volunteered to help out on the missing FBI agent in Iran. Exactly. So there's a whole history there. his own of money. Dance, is of this dance with Deripaska that was quite brilliant, really, because he not only was doing this incredible maneuver against American democracy and coordinating this attack on democracy. But at the same time, he was dangling himself as a real prospect for being someone who was going to flip. And then there's, of course, the Christopher Steele saga, where there are a lot of indications, although Christopher Steele will deny that, that Steele was working for Deripaska, even at the time that he was making that exact document. A former Russian asset of the CIA came to me right after the Steele dossier wanted to have lunch, and I went and have lunch with him. And he said, that's bullshit, right? <laughs> sealed, sealed dossier, that stinks. He said, I think that's a Russian product. And I dismissed him out of hand. But in retrospect, I, I was very suspicious. Like- it, there's a lot of, what's the spy game? There's a lot of reasons to be, believe a lot of things. Yeah. Deception is always in the middle of it. You've spoken to a lot of people who know Charlie McGonigal quite well. And you've described him as being someone with a bit of a mercurial character, someone who, you know, who will blow up and has a lot of ego. They, that's okay. People can be like that, but still do their jobs well. But he held two jobs that you have to wonder how good or proficient he was at these jobs. If as the head of cyber counterintelligence, he basically was in charge of trying to stop the attack on democracy that the Russians were doing, the GRU attack on the DNC, the, the WikiLeaks stuff. And yet it wasn't really able to, to even hint to many people that it was actually going on. When you think about the progress made at the DNC, it was so slow and painful. That case worked just, just ticked along very slowly. The same with the email cases, the same with Wiener. These are all, you know, the, the timing seemed so unfortunate all the time. Do you think that was just yeah. him being bad at his job? Do you think the Russians were really good at what they were doing? Or is he just you know, yeah. basically under some influence? They are very good at influence. They are very good at this. They've been doing this a long time, even before the Soviet era. But the Bolsheviks picked up where the Tsar's agents left off. There are all these emigre, anti-Bolshevik groups across Europe, and particularly in Paris in 1918, 1920. So what did the Bolsheviks do? They created their own emigre group and attracted people to it and then rolled them all up. They're very good at this game. And McGonagall, in a way, right, reminds me a little bit of Kim Philby. McGonagall wasn't part of any establishment like Kim Philby was. Kim Philby went to all the right schools. He spoke the right way, bred. And 
he really sh shocked these and people couldn't believe that he was be an agent that he would have gone even when they knew he had they couldn't really believe that kim philby at the top of british intelligence could be a a, a quizzling and he was mcgonagall didn't come from that same cut but he but he, when you're in a position like that when you're the head of counterintelligence you're supposed to be the top russian hunter right mm. And you turn, you're tuning your cup. People aren't going to believe that. They don't want to believe that. No, they don't. And I think we, we have a lot more to learn about Charlie McGonagall. I think this is the arrest was just the second round with him. The first round would have been Charlie calling him in saying, Charlie, we got you. Let's make a deal. You cooperate and we'll go. We can go easier on you. And I think his attorney said, well, maybe we'll get back to you on that. But right now, there's no deal. But I think we're going to learn a lot more. I think it's going to be, there's going to be some motivation on some in the FBI to leak out that, that, that McGonagall was much more engaged in espionage. He has not been charged with espionage. I know. But we may learn he was, he had his finger in so much stuff. He was involved in, the, in, in trying to get to the bottom of why the CIA had lost so many agents in China. This was as part of That's a classic in, counter. In 2010, there was a concern around all these spies starting to disappear in China. And he was in charge of that special task force designed to figure out exactly what that was about. And who knows what, yeah. whether he was leaking information during that. Who knows if he was leaking information to Derry Pasca as they were trying to grill him about what was going on in 2016. And then there's all this incredible stuff that happened in Albania. And I have a lot of research, which I'll leave until tomorrow, about what he was really getting up to in Albania. And it's, it's, it's very lucrative for him and also very shady. And certainly looks to me like he was operating basically as a on-the-ground field operative for the other side. Yeah. And he was not the only ex-FBI guy. Involved in that mess either. Yeah. There's at least four um, of them as far, as far as I can see. And four, yeah. And one of whom I know really quite well. He's this uh, and, uh, Rossi, Rossini. Mr. Yeah. Rossini, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot more to be learned uh, about that, that, all that stuff, Albania. I think that was probably just for money. Spying may not have been involved. But again, the thing is that once you take the step across the line, the opposition knows you've stepped and they have a handle on you. And Charlie McGonagall certainly has a longtime counterintelligence specialist. He knows better than anybody because he's practiced this as a counterintelligence agent. Get somebody across the line, get them to do one little compromising thing. I was, I remember being trained. Oh, this is a thousand years ago when I was trained as a case officer. And one of the maxim is you get somebody to do something that's not illegal. Yeah. You ask a guy to give you a document that's not classified and you have somebody photograph that meeting where he's giving you something or you don't even have to have that. He knows once he's done that, you've got something on him. He's going to bed with that in the back of his head at night or she, I should mm -hmm. say. So it's one of the ways that foreign agents get a handle on congressional staffers. So what you're describing is a longer process of recruitment, that it's not just a hey, here's a bunch of money, let's get you going. This takes a long time. It requires a building of a relationship. It requires a process of understanding the vulnerabilities of that person, what they need, what kind of needs can you fulfill? And then a slow 
escalation of things that you're asking them to do. So it wouldn't be in that, hey, Charlie, here's a $220,000. I'm going to give you in a bag in a parked car outside of a restaurant. It didn't start there. It must have started way earlier with, hey, can you give us a little bit of evidence about this? Can you let us know what's going on in this particular investigation? And over time, they would have built a relationship of trust, maybe a friendship. McGonagall was going through a lot of personal issues as well. He's had this relationship with his girlfriend. girlfriend. He had his ex-wife, as he called her, although she wasn't an ex-wife in D.C. There's a lot of things going on in his life. He was nearing retirement age and had spent 20 good years in, in the FBI, had not seen enough. He had his Best kids, years of his life. Yeah. He had to give his kids to, through college. They were all college-age kids. They, that's not cheap. And so you've got a man who really is primed for this kind of stuff. He's, and oh, even if he knows that he's doing it, he's probably thinking, how do I get them through all of this? How do I, not, not excusing him, of course. I'm just saying that's. It must have been tempting for a long time. There would be reason for him to meet with high-level targets of the FBI, like Derek Huska. There was reason for him to meet with these guys and try to recruit them or suss them out. Get Who is this guy, Derek Spaka? Let me get to know him. I'm the head of counterintelligence. I'm going to handle that myself. There are other, lots, of, lots of Russian mobsters and mobsters slash agents close to Putin they were of high interest to the FBI. So he can meet with these guys. He's got a reason to meet with them. And he's trying to recruit them, right, to come over. But he may be sitting there and thinking at the same time, this guy's worth a billion dollars. Yeah, several. And Deripaska might be even kidding with him. And Charlie, whenever you leave the FBI, you've got a job with me. I, there was a KGB guy that used to look me up all the time uh, in Washington. and. Uh, I mean, he, his cover, his light cover was the, he was from TASS, the Soviet <laughs> news agency. And, and, and he also went after Chris Hitchens, my late great friend. And one time he invited us both out for coffee together. So Hitchens and I went to this place in DuPont Circle to have coffee with Boris, our KGB guy. And C Boris is trying to get everything he can out of us, thinking we've got secrets. Actually, he just needs to write a report. So from his Washington sources, which are us, yeah. which he will parlay to, Mo to Moscow as that we're his spies. But halfway through the lunch, or I guess it was drinks, Hitchens said, Boris, why don't you come work for us? You just do that. You just know, throw it out there. Just uh, come over to our side. We could make it really comfortable for you. You know, Derpaska is very wealthy. He was, he was like, incredible lifestyle. He's surrounded by beautiful women all the time. Lives in a yacht, has these penthouses in, in New York, and these other homes, maybe six or seven of them in these beautiful locations. And this man lives an extraordinary life and has so much money at his disposal. You could see yeah. how any number of FBI agents earning, what, $180,000 a year, maybe, probably less, are sitting there thinking, why not? It's in my one shot. I, I think it was our friend Craig Unger who pointed out in a piece in the New Republic that... A lot of ex-FBI guys have gone over to the bad side. Not that they became agents or spies, but they went to work for bad guys. Yeah. Russians. As former directors of the FBI. I don't know that Louis Free or any of these other former directors have been called on the carpet. I don't think so at all. And it's amazing that the FBI lets them do it. It is amazing to me that they all do it because it, up until now, I guess it hasn't been that much of a problem. Up until 2016, 
it didn't seem like it was going to be that much of an issue. Then comes this attack on democracy, and, and suddenly it is a very big issue. So what might have been tradition, you leave the force, you can go take whatever job you want and get your cushy job in working for some billionaire or working as a security analyst for somebody. Cut to 2016, things change a lot. Suddenly America's under attack by these foreign agents. And you've got a situation in, in, in 2016 where the rules did change, where the whole thing was no longer acceptable. But the culture takes time to just reflect that. You need cases like McGonagall to show that change happen. They've always been trying to subvert our system for as long as I've been around. They've always tried to, but they never, and they tried very hard to make progress during the anti-Vietnam War years. They didn't really get far. You know, the big spies that went over the other side, Ames, Hanson, all these guys, they did it for money and they didn't do it for ideology because of Vietnam or American imperialism, blah, blah, blah. But they did it for money. Americans spy for money. Russians and the Chinese who come to us, they, money can be involved but and personal issues involved, but basically they're doing it for ideology. They hate the system. They hate the communist system. Right. Or they hate the corruption. Very ideologically driven from the other side, but Americans spy for money. That's what they want. That's what they need. That's what they crave. And they've been trying it forever, but they never hit, they never had a fruitful atmosphere until Trump came along. They've been going after Trump for decades before he ran for president. His first wife's father was a Czech communist agent, and they had her reporting on Trump. He was reporting on Trump through his daughter, who was married to Trump. They, there's, it's all been out there for a long time. Mm -hmm. I don't need to bore people with it, but Trump's, his deal with the Miss Universe contest is going to Moscow all the time. He, he took out full-page ads in the New York Times and elsewhere saying he could solve the nuclear arms crisis and get reductions in arms, making a nuclear-free world. The Russians saw this, and they've been grooming him for a long time. And so me. suddenly, they've got this atmosphere, and there's in, in American political culture has changed where there's great distrust, the rise of the Tea Party movement, and so on. American politics is fracturing in a way at the high level, which hadn't happened before. No. They saw their opportunity, and they took it. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned Hansen there. Do you think this is... Uh, the scale of Hansen, is it bigger than Hansen? Is it going to turn out to be the biggest scandal we've had in uh, the intelligence world in the United States? Or is it just uh, one guy, maybe a few colleagues, just uh, meandering off in the wrong direction? What, what kind of scandal do you think this is going to be? We don't know yet, but we do yeah. know that Charlie McGonagall was in a hell of a position. He was in a position like Hansen. He had a catbird seat. He, could, he saw a lot. He knew the names of our agents in Russia and China and other places. He knows, you know, their head of counterintelligence for New York, he knows a lot. Yeah. He knows code names. He knows meeting places. He knows commo systems. One of the things that, one of the things they were investigating in the loss of CIA agents in China was a heavy suspicion that the, co the covert communication system with the Chinese agents had been compromised somehow. And they were looking for what, where was the leak on that? By the way, there had been a similar leak of CIA agents in Iran, and they were all rolled up in murder too. So this seems to be a problem. There are huge counterintelligence holes in our defenses here. 
Yeah, they really uh, are. They really are. It's uh, remarkable that this has happened. And Charlie McGonigal is career spanned many of the important counterintelligence, the cyber counterintelligence roles in DC and in and in New York. But he also was responsible for investigations like TWA eight hundred, the Los Alamos investigation, investigated the terrorist bombings in Tanzania and Kenya. This just and nine eleven, of course, stands out as one of these key things that he was involved investigating. Those are all just very high-profile investigations. If he was leaking and the failures on the, the failures leading up to January sixth, the FBI says it was clueless; it didn't know what was really going on. If these groups were coming, if they would ransack the Capitol. As Bob Dylan wrote, "You don't need a weatherman to tell you which way the wind is blowing," and that was all in the air weeks before. I remember doing some reporting on this. Social media was on fire with these right-wing groups talking about marching on Washington and taking down the government. Did he have a finger in that, in, in blunting the intelligence on these right-wing groups coming to Washington, the Proud Boys? The FBI had multiple confidential sources in the Proud Boys, and yet they never learned about the, their plans for January 6th. Sounds ludicrous. It makes it sounds you wonder, like as they say, it makes you wonder. Jeff, I want to thank you so much for taking so, time to be with us tonight. Jeff Stein, columnist for Spy Talk. He's also, as many of you, a pretty celebrated reporter from the Washington Post and of Newsweek, Congressional Quarterly, and a bunch of other places, including Playboy, GQ, Esquire, Rolling Stones, all your favorite places, and the New Republic. Amazing stuff. Jeff, thanks for being here. I'm really enjoying your insight into his mindset and into why he was such an interesting and potent recruit for any adversary. And this is one of those stories that's going to keep going. But I thank you very much for being here tonight. I've admired your work for some time, so I'm really pleased to be here. Thank you very much. And likewise, do you want to tell people about your outstanding Substack and how it's a must subscribe sure. to? I started Spy Talk back in 2005. I was a Homeland Security editor, putting out a daily on Homeland Security at Congressional Quarterly. And that was mostly domestic stuff as a result of 911. And I'd always been foreign news oriented, national security oriented, the foreign side, foreign policy, and so on. So I was bored. And sources were still coming to me and dropping stuff on me, or I'd read stuff that I thought needed more attention and specialist journals and so on. So I started writing Spy Talk as a weekly call at Congressional Quarter in 2005. And somewhere along the line, it became three times a week and then daily. And so I did it until late 2009, until the company was sold to the Economist Group, and they fired about 40, I think there were 45 of us. They were fired. We had a great party at my house. Anyway, we all scattered to the winds. And I ended up in the Washington Post that hired me to do a spy talk blog, a daily blog. It wasn't that great. I had a file every day. I'm more of an investigative guy and not an instant wisdom guy. It went all right. It went on for a year or so. But a friend of mine became editor of the revamped Newsweek. And he called me up and said, hey, come over here and you can do spy talk. and." whatever else you wanted to do in the national script. So I jumped there and that was a great seven years. And then that came under new management and the last of us senior reporters were lopped off. And that happened to me. And shortly after that came, that came along. And a friend of mine is an early signer up, Bill Bishop, who does the Sinocism, their China newsletter. He, he was hugely successful and making a lot of money. It's upset. And so he said, you ought to come, you ought to start this column over here. This is a great outfit. 
So I talked to the owners and they said, yeah, come on over. So I started and didn't really know what to expect. I'm a little long on the tooth now. So I wasn't really ready to be banging my head against the wall every day, working 80 hours a week like I once did. I, but I started up as I conferred with some equally long in the tooth friends, former great journalists and at places like the Post and the Times and Newsweek and so on. So the bunch of us started it together and um, it's taken off. It's not up there with the big hitters like Andrew Sullivan who do political, mostly political and social commentary. I'm a niche within a niche doing intelligence, but as I say, it's an intelligence. The subtitle is Intelligence for Thinking People, mm. and uh, that we live at the intersection of intelligence with foreign policy and military operations, so where they all come together. It's not the biggest thing on Substack, obviously, but it makes me a nice living, and I'm able to pay people, like my contributors who write for me, and so all's good in the world. We're having fun, and, and when I have somebody who worked with McGonagall call me up and say, let me tell you about McGonagall, that makes my day. That's I can it. write a story because I've known these sources for years. And so, so it's called Spy um, Talk. There's a free version, but then, of course, they can also subscribe to the paid version, make sure Jeff gets his coffee and gets to eat his chili. And uh, <laughs> Jeff, thank you very much for being on the show tonight. This wasn't exactly what we had planned, but Thanks, I'm glad Jeff. we were able to get it done. And uh, we'll be hopefully have you back on another day and talk some more. Me too. Thanks. It was fun. Thank See you. See you around. I'll be back with a little bit more right after this. Hey, it's Zev from Narrative. I'm excited to announce the launch of my new original series, Spy Murdoch. This is an epic story of Rupert Murdoch as an intelligence asset, and it's all 100% true. Spy Murdoch will premiere in February on Narrative's Patreon feed and Narrative's new premium YouTube channel. Now, to join either of those services, you can either head over to patreon.com forward slash narrative and sign up there, or to join our new YouTube premium channel, just look for the join button underneath the screen when you're watching on YouTube. This is brand new content with bombshell revelations that have never been revealed before about the iconic Murdoch. We will explain, amongst many other things, how Fox News gained such a foothold in the United States. For a limited time, we're offering access to all our premium content for just $5 a month. Prices will go up, so lock in today. You'll have a front row seat as I unravel the secrets of Rupert Murdoch for the first time. Don't miss this opportunity to be among the first to learn these brand new details and watch this narrative original series with me. It'll change the way you view history and your place in it. That's Spy Murdoch, beginning in February on Narrative. So that wasn't obviously the intended show that we had put together for tonight. And I apologize for that. It is a tremendous amount of research that we've uh, been able to put together, or I've been able to put together in the last 24 hours about what's been going on with the McGonagall affair. And I, I want to give it complete justice when I tell you about everything that I have. And I want to also let Jeff Stein talk about his very interesting encounters with uh, and reporting around the kind of character that involved McGonagall, that his temperament and his life position. I really wanted to get everyone to understand who he was as a person, who is as a person, and what might have motivated his decisions to betray his country. That is a huge allegation when we say things betray his country. When we talk about betrayal and, and espionage and why haven't we seen those kinds of charges around Charlie McGonigal yet? 
And as Jeff indicated there and others have said to you, those are coming, in my opinion, too. There is just so much that is being investigated here. And this could just be a, a first foray into the story as they're trying to get Charlie McGonigal to flip maybe to provide further evidence for the remainder of this investigation. Now, I have a very good sense of what that investigation looks like right now, and it certainly is massive. There's nothing that I can think of in recent history, with maybe the exception of Hansen, that even comes close. Maybe Epstein, maybe it's that kind of scale of successful intelligence operations that really have damaged the United States and our national security. Maybe it's the Mar-a-Lago documents that are that kind of scale. Certainly on a combined basis, when you think what American intelligence has been through in the last six or seven years, there is a fundamentally, there's no other way to describe it, but a real intelligence war going on between the United States and our adversaries. And it's coming at the intelligence community from any number of sides. It's not just one country. It's certainly Russia, China, Israel, Saudi Arabia, UAE, you name it. There are things that the intelligence community is facing on a day-to-day basis, which they've never ever had to deal with before. Maybe World War II was as complicated as this, but who knows? Certainly technology is different now. The number of intelligence assets, the amount of money being thrown around, it's a very difficult time for the intelligence community. And yet they're doing a fundamentally brilliant job in in dealing with all of this, because frankly, the United States still seems to be winning, in my opinion, in this very complicated battle. So I have a lot to share. I can't do it tonight. And unfortunately, I'm going to have to wait another day because I just want to make sure that it's buttoned down. But there are, there's a lot that I have to share with you, and I apologize we can't do it tonight. I can do it, hopefully, tomorrow night. And I hope you'll join me at 8 o'clock tomorrow night for a special edition of Narrative, and we'll do the show we expected to tonight, Bribes, Blackmail, and Betrayal, which will give you a really good understanding of Charlie McGonigal's history as an intelligence asset, but also as a counterintelligence expert and spy for us. The work he's done, where he failed, where he succeeded, and also how someone like Oleg Deripaska played not only Charlie McGonigal, but Oleg Deripaska played everybody in the intelligence community. He, for many years, he's now considered perhaps perhaps one of the biggest targets in the intelligence community because over those so many years, he kept dancing with the intelligence community in a way that made them think that they could really own him and they were wrong. They did not own him at all, as we found out in 2016 when Donald Trump was elected. There's so much more to talk about. My own reporting has revealed that there are multiple agents. There are the, the kind of things that was going on with, the, with these operations are remarkable and, and terrifying, really, in some ways. Plus, there are things that Charlie McGonigal himself may not have realized he was being involved in when all of this was going, because intelligence is a game of shadows and cover and and maybe he wasn't even aware of some of these things that he, he was impl- implicating himself in. Maybe he was, and that would be even scarier if he did. Plus, as we mentioned last time, all of this goes back decades. The tentacles are big, and we'll have more reporting on that tomorrow night. That's it for Narrative tonight. You can always support Narrative by going to patreon.com forward slash narrative. It's patreon.com forward slash narrative. My apologies again for the lateness of tonight's show, but tomorrow, 8 p.m., We shall see you then. Lots of really interesting stuff, and we'll break down the entire Charlie McGonigal case. On that note, let me say goodnight. Every minute of Narrative's reporting, every story that we break is made possible by our patrons. You too can become a patron by joining at patreon.com forward slash narrative. Narrative. 
where truth lives. One day you'll tell the story of autocrats, crooks and kings who came for our freedom. A story of citizens who stood up to tyranny and won. The people prevailed and renewed an old vow to a more perfect union. And that was just the beginning. The story continues. Narrative. Where truth lives.